What's going on, entrepreneurs, business owners, and investors everywhere? Today, we have an exceptional guest for you on the Seven Figures Club podcast. We have Robin Alexander, who is, you're going to find out, has an amazing story. She's a serial entrepreneur. She's also the director of acquisitions at Vibrant Village Concepts. Robin spent 20 years in the electrical engineering field. Eight years were spent as an international marketing and product manager negotiating with C-level executives at some of the biggest tech companies out there, Qualcomm, General Instrument, Kyocera, Ford, Medtronic, Sony, and the like to facilitate global implementation of design and manufacturing software. In 2002, she began working in real estate full-time, but you're gonna hear some amazing stories of when she first started in the 90s. And she started out as an agent, then became a broker, did her first fix and flip in 93. And then in 2006, after completing her CCIM education, she moved into the apartment sector full-time. Robin has developed the unique skill set to find, negotiate, renovate, and resell adaptive reuse and value-add properties, providing consistently strong returns for her investors. And she works with communities to provide well-built, safe apartment housing that tenants can take pride in at affordable pricing. And Robin, we are excited to have you. Welcome to the show. There are over 32 million businesses in the U.S. and over 90% of them will never break seven figures in annual sales. So how do we as entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs break into that seven figures club? This podcast will relentlessly share the secrets, strategies, and tactics I've used to create three multi-seven figures businesses and bring in even more successful entrepreneurs than me to share their inspirational stories and tactics to success. You can create your dream business in life right now. So buckle up and let's go. Thank you, Leo. That sounds pretty awesome. I, I'm Thank you. I'm very honored to be on the show. Now, Robin, we love to begin these podcasts by getting to know our guests a little bit better. So tell us, if you could, a little bit about your background and maybe some of the key events that led you to become an entrepreneur. Okay. Um, I was in the electrical engineering world for 22 years. And uh, during that time, I did my first fix and flip, as you mentioned, in 1993, uh, long before the benefit of the DIY channels and and mentors and things like that. And I figured it out, school of hard knocks. Um, but it was kind of fun. And uh, when I retired from that after 22 years, I figured, you know, what do I want to do? What am I good at? Well, I like real estate. And I think I would be good at that. So I got my uh, my California real estate license and as an agent. And I decided I really didn't like it at all. <laughs> oh, what I did, did you like, like about being, it? Yeah, I didn't like it because you know it's it's kind of the only it's the only job that you can do a hundred percent correct and not get paid because the okay. deal may fall apart at the end of the day and you're sitting there going, but I did my job. So it, it was brutal. And and you know, when you're dealing with uh being an agent, you're dealing with um families and and property owners that are very emotional because this is usually one of the biggest uh purchases they're ever going to make. And you know, they can be fickle and um, at the time that I went into it, it was in the early 2000s, and it was, you know, a pretty boom market at that time. But then 2006, 7, and 8 rolled around when things yeah. started to go with, you know, short sales and foreclosures and bankruptcies, and it, it became a really difficult market to maneuver. It was exceptionally difficult uh, back then. And so you started out uh, in engineering and then uh, started to you know, look at different opportunities in real estate. So it looks like your first, you know, entrepreneurial opportunities were, you know, you did a fix and flip in 93, did some more, and then you went out as a real estate agent. And 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 then now, did you also become a real estate broker after that? Or what was that process? I did. I did. My, my first foray into kind of being an entrepreneur were the fix and flips, like you had mentioned. Yeah. And I realized I liked that freedom. I was not beholden to somebody that was controlling my destiny. I was the one controlling my destiny. And I kind of liked that, which is why I think I went into becoming an agent because you're a 1099, you're an at will, and you can control your own, own destiny. And I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to interview because I was so naive when I left engineering. I just thought it was just like another W-2 job. You go out there and you interview and then you get the job. Well, I got the job at every single brokerage that I interviewed at because I had no idea it was a 1099. <laughs> yeah. So um, then what I did was I said, oh, wait a minute, I'm going to go 
to the best brokerage so that I can copy their models and then I'm going to go do it bigger, better. And so I hired into Century 21. I learned all of their models. And then I realized, oh, wait a minute, this is not necessarily the best model for me or for how people that I would like to serve need. And so I found a Keller Williams franchise. Um, Ultimately, uh, we wound up buying a bankrupted Keller Williams franchise. And uh, that was back in uh, February of uh, 2006. And fortunately, I was too naive to really understand about market cycles and things like that. Even though I was in engineering and I had the logical mind, I didn't look at it in terms of how the history of real estate worked. So I just went and I I made up my mind and I said, well, I'm going to buy this bankrupted Keller Williams um, franchise. Uh, They were, gosh, I think they were like $900,000 in debt. They had defaulted on uh, their, their office lease. They had 30 agents producing next to nothing, which is why they were bankrupt. Um, They had uh, defaulted on all of their office equipment leases, et cetera. And so we bought it. We put our nose down. And over the course of the next six years, we were able to completely convert this. We changed offices. Um, We followed the model that Keller Williams put together. And the very first uh, franchise Uh, point was lead with revenue. So don't get yourself in debt. So the first thing we did was, okay, let's move to a different location that is a better location. Let's um, look at what the agents are doing to produce. Let's let the ones that are just not going to ever become a good agent, let's let them go and let's start recruiting for good agents. So we did this in the worst market in the history of real estate in the United States. And by the time I sold my interest in uh, November of 2012, we had 158 agents producing a minimum of six transactions per year. We were $600,000 in the bank, 100% debt-free, and it was a really awesome opportunity. It was a great learning experience for me. Um, It also made me realize I don't want to be a babysitter of agents. I don't want to be a broker. I just want to go out and do what I really like to do, which is building great properties for tenants to take pride in. And that's really, that's really how I started to develop the mindset of kind of humanizing and changing the face of the commercial real estate industry as a, as a for-profit developer. Absolutely. So going back to the beginning, you started out at Century 21 you're mm-hmm. paying attention. All right, I'm going to learn this business model and, mm-hmm. and pay attention, everybody. She didn't go out and just start. She learned a model. She tried to find something that was working instead of reinventing the wheel. I think that's a seven-figure mm-hmm. secret. Now, when we get into eight-figure secrets, you realize, actually, maybe the Century 21 model, not as good as, as uh, some of the other ones. And if anybody, if any of you have read any books by Keller Williams, uh, just an amazing entrepreneur Keller Williams is. And so I wanted to get what is what was it about the Keller Williams model that stood out as I think this is a superior model. What was it that stood out to you? Excellent question, Leo. Somebody gave me, and I don't remember who exactly it was, uh, gave me one of the books, which was The Millionaire Real mm-hmm. Estate Agent. And that was written yes. by Gary Keller. Yep. And what I learned after I bought the franchise um, was you buy you buy these books at the brokerage, and then you give them away as a recruiting tool. And, and you, you tell the person that you're trying to recruit, read this, there's money in this. And if you read it, there actually were dollar bills nestled inside of it. <laughs> Every time you came to a that. good point, it was awesome. So we utilized that and it was it was really good. And it made me think differently about recruiting, attracting, uh, building a business. And the real, the real estate millionaire agent, I did actually structure my business around that and I did really well with it. But I also realized being an agent per se and being the broker per se just was not my cup of tea. I, I just didn't enjoy it. But I yet mean, you I, did it so well. You did it so well. You went from 2006, 30 agents, bankrupt franchise for Keller Williams. And by 2012, it was, was it 150 agents and just completely turned it around? Agents. Yeah. So, well, so we, we what, follow the model. Yeah. There it is. 
And, and I think that's so important because the, the, the stories and the roadmap for success are found in books. And usually these are books that we didn't read in, in school. We didn't learn this in college. And the most successful entrepreneurs out there have given us roadmaps. for. And it, in today's world, in 2023, there are more roadmaps for success ever. There are YouTube videos, so many different programs and ways to learn about how to follow someone who's successful. And Gary Keller, uh, his most recent book, uh, The One Thing, I think is a really powerful book. He's just so good at making things simple and focused instead of getting so confused. So what were some of those keys? You were implementing what you learned, but if you had to break it down in just a few simple keys, how do you go from bankrupt 30 agents that aren't producing to 150 and producing. And this is not an easy time. Any of you who weren't in real estate in 2008, 9, 10, 11, I mean, these are not easy times. There were so much foreclosure in places like California, where you were at, and Las Vegas and Phoenix and Utah, where I was at. And, and so break that down. What were some of those keys to success? And I think one of the big things, you must have been a really good manager. What did you learn about managing people? Yeah. So managing people, I, I learned how to delegate, not abdicate, delegate. Right. So I had to learn how to because in your in your own business, nobody's going to care more about your business than you do. And as a result, if you tend to be a type A like I do, yeah. you don't want to let go of the reins. So I had to learn new skill sets. And the way I learned that was to find other people that were good at the areas that I was weak at. And then I also uh, read a lot of books. I was a voracious, I still am a voracious reader. And I, I, I'm i kind of self-taught. I was driven. I knew that there were better ways. I knew I didn't know what they were, but I was smart enough to either hire people to help me with it or hire, hire people to fulfill a function. So when we first bought the brokerage, um, it was just a, a couple of us you know, trying to run this business. And then we realized, you know what, we really need to find the model put the systems in place, and then hire the right people. Because hiring the bad body is worse than hiring nobody. So true. Yep. Sometimes it's addition by subtraction. And so the best entrepreneurs in the world, yes, they are confident, but they're also humble to understand, I'm not good at this. I need to bring in someone who is really good at that. And if you're the smartest person in the room, then you've created the wrong room. You've got to bring people who are better at certain areas than you and fill in those weak spots. And then at some point, there also has to be accountability. What were some of the cultures, values, and principles that you instilled into this business to turn the psychology around? Because the culture was a losing culture and something you guys did, you know, changed that culture. The first thing is to identify what the problem was. And we interviewed the agents that we acquired, and we realized that they they had no idea about how run how to run a business because they were either W two previously and they were showing up thinking they were going to get get all these leads and it was going to be super easy and it and it just wasn't it isn't right so we had to identify what the problem was we interviewed the agents to find out what their perception was of their weaknesses and the strengths and how the business is running and then we dovetailed that information with um strategically targeting a few key agents that were influencers in the market so that we could bring them in and then we could also set up an education program that allowed the ones that were willing to learn to attend, because as a 1099 in the state of California, you cannot mandate that these people show up for training. You cannot mandate that they show up for team meetings and things like that. So you had to find a way to tap into the mindset to attract them to want to do better. And so that's what we set out to do over the course of the first six to 12 months of buying this bankrupted Keller Williams franchise. And it sounds like one of the key things that you did was you started to implement levels of standards, like you raised the standards as a whole. And you did that by finding people who were, you know, producers who were getting the job done, who had some success bringing them in. And then by their example, and then also teaching that was able to kind of change that culture from a losing one to now winning. And a lot of that is legion. 
And for a lot of business owners and entrepreneurs out there, understanding lead gen is, is one of their biggest bottlenecks. How do you, do you have kind of a process of, hey, this is a, you know, and we're going to talk in a minute here about your career now as a developer, as a developer, you know, you're raising so much money for some massive, massive projects. So there's also, you've got to have, you know, accredited investors, you got to bring them in. So do you have like a strategy that you would synthesize out for, hey, this is how we increase marketing and this is how we bring in new leads and and the right leads and and what's what's kind of your process with that that you found to work so what i did was i i sat back and i evaluated my work life as an agent what made me successful as an agent and what made the next agent not successful well the first thing was okay what is the transaction flow of a successful real estate purchase or sale Okay. And so then I just detailed all of that out. Okay. First you have to, you know, get the lead. What do you do after you get the lead? You have to service the lead. And then how do you, are they a buyer or are they a seller? And then how do you create a a buyer's packet? How do you create a seller's packet? How do you set expectations for the, the buyer and for the seller so that they understand your value as a professional? So once I identified all the way through, then it allowed me to be able to teach each of those different components to the agent so that they could understand how to run their business like a business, but treat it like a J-O-B. And one of the questions I would ask them is, if at the end of your day today, you had to report into your boss, would they keep you on or would they fire you? Oh, that's powerful. Thank you. So it helped them to understand the self-accountability and then creating mentorships for each of the agents that wanted to move forward. We wound up getting rid of most of the 30 agents because they were really just there waiting for Aunt Tilly to call saying, will you sell my house? And, and we also understood <laughs> what, what it took to be a, a minimally producing agent so that they could sustain being able to pay a mortgage, their E&O, their splits, et cetera. So we, we, really evaluated the market and said, if you're doing six transactions a year, that's one every other month, that's enough in the state of California for you to be able to make a decent living without killing yourself. And that was our minimum standard. And we made sure to articulate and set the expectations to the agents coming in that, you know, at the end of each quarter, we're going to evaluate who the top producers are, who the bottom producers are. And if you're in the top bottom 10%, we're going to help you with a mentorship program if you choose to stay on. And if they chose not to, we would gently release them back out to the market so they could hang their license someplace else. And it, and it's a way of, of, teaching self-accountability. It's a way of teaching them that this is your business versus your J-O-B. And that's really phenomenal because if you break down those transactions, six transactions in a year with an average uh, property sale, maybe of half a million dollars or even more in that area, I mean, that's a good six-figure living. And, Mm -hmm. and, And you just, you made it very uh, simple in terms of a process and then the accountability that's huge right there and then get rid of your low producers another part of the uh you know process that you built out and so then you know one thing one step after another and now you've got this great profitable team and then you're able to exit that and for you in 06 when you started was there an an end sighting goal where you're like we are going to build this to sell this now, a lot of business owners are building a business, but it's not necessarily one that's sellable. And so you have to take some steps to make it sellable. What was that process like for you for you to make that a sellable asset? And then how did that decision you know, come about? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be completely transparent with you, Leo. I never thought about the end. I just thought, okay, I'm going to go there. I have a job. I'm going to do that job and I'm going to move it forward. And it wasn't until... I started to reflect that I don't really enjoy being an agent and I don't really enjoy being a broker. It wasn't until that point when I went, huh, (laughs) I don't want to do this anymore. And, and, And it was only at that time that I decided, okay, 
how am I going to exit this and how am I going to move forward? So uh, we had been profitable for the 21 prior months to my exit. So the, all, the 21 months immediately prior to my exit, which was uh, November of 2012. So for the 21 months prior to that, we were profitable as a, as a brokerage. So that made me feel really comfortable. It certainly put value into the business where I could exit out of it. And then I could go off and do what I truly discovered that I like doing, which is the adaptive reuse, the value add for apartments, and then really focusing in the apartment sector, the development, and and going from that perspective. I never expected to grow to where I am today back then, but you know, you, you just stay focused, you follow the system, you make up your mind, and, and you just go do it. So how important was it to build the right systems processes? Because a lot of business owners and, you know, as entrepreneurs, like, you know, we, we have a level of ego at some point where the business can only run with us and only I can do certain, you know, jobs in the business. No one else can do it. But it sounds like to me that you are very good at building a business that could operate without you. And that's a sellable business. If you're the bottleneck in between every little thing and all the sales process, then it's very difficult for you to be able to sell that business. How important was it in the systems and processes you built a business that could thrive kind of without you having to be involved in the daily? At the beginning, I had no idea how important that was. And I made a lot of mistakes, quite frankly. Um, as I started to measure the things that we were implementing, it, it made it more clear which things needed to be measured, which systems were working, which systems did we try that didn't work. Um, and it was it was the combination really of two things. It was getting the systems in place and then it was getting the right people in the right positions yes. in place. Yes. Yep. Systems and processes and Jim Collins, great book from good to great, get the yep. right people in the bus and then the bus can turn and go different directions as long as you got the right people, but you got the wrong people on the bus pretty difficult to go the right direction. So you sell that business. Now you've got some capital, you've got some experience. What's the next decision-making process to decide to go into the apartments? Um, I kind which, of which by the way, was amazing timing. Anybody <laughs> who knows the apartments and I've invested in apartments, that was really good timing. Well done. Yeah. Um, I realized that housing was a really crucial issue. Across the nation today, we're 15 million units shy of what we need for new built for, for to be able to house America. And Robin, housing, can you say that one more time? I don't think people understand how big a deal that is. Across the nation, we are 15 million housing use units short of what we needed to, to fulfill giving shelter to people in America. And for me, well, for everybody, housing is a necessity. It is not a luxury. Maybe the choice of where you get to live and the house that you get to live in is, is the, the luxury, but housing is a necessity. And when I started to kind of tap into that, it became really important to me to humanize the face of the commercial real estate industry. I'm, I I'm all about the numbers because of the electrical engineering background. Um, I, I'm a little bit different from an, from an electrical engineering background standard because a lot of electrical engineering people do not get into people forward facing sales. Yeah. Okay. They don't get into yeah. sales. And I learned how to do that. I, I, my whole life I've been horribly shy, but I force myself to do the things I, and grow outside of my comfort zone. I've become a public speaker um, and I was terrified to do that. And now it's just a more natural skill because I've done it so often. And that's the other thing is I learned that almost every single thing that's out there that was preventing me from either having success or was moving me forward was a learned skill. And once I understood that, it made it a lot easier for me to move into some of the other things. And when I realized that I really wanted to help, you know, I, I would go look at properties to purchase and they were multifamily buildings. And the, the tenants that were living in there were hardworking people and they were paying top dollar 
to live in places that were substandard. The, the cabinets were falling, literally falling off of the, the cabinet, uh, wow. of the walls. The, uh, the paint was peeling, the carpets were stained. And I thought, man, if I had to, to pay that amount of money to live in that property, I just wouldn't be happy. And, wow. and I thought there has to be a better way. And that's what that's when I decided to not go strictly for the top dollar for the profit. And don't get me wrong, I am a for-profit developer. So I'm always looking at the bottom line. But there oh, yeah. had to be a balance of being able to build quality and be able to get people into homes or apartments um, more affordably. And, and that's what I started to focus on back in uh, 2006. And now I've taken it to a, a completely different level. <laughs> yes, yes, you have. And so when you're doing multifamily deals, generally speaking, you're needing probably a 25% down payment. And so, you know, if it's a $5 million purchase, you're needing to come up with a million dollars. And so as you got started in this endeavor, um, was there a point where like, wow, this is going to be expensive. I've got to start raising capital and putting investors together. What was that process like? And, and how did you do that? Because a lot terrifying. of people have seen these opportunities, but they're like, oh, how, how do I do this? How do I bring people together and money? Oh, Leo, it was terrifying. Um, I, I self-funded for the first few. Um, and then yeah. I realized that I could do more as long as I follow the model. Yeah. There's just more commas and zeros. And as long as I was making sure that I was, you know, not romancing the numbers and I and I had my analytics down, whether I did something that was a million or 10 million or a hundred million, it really didn't matter because the foundational analytics are the same. But the funding capacity is completely different. So, you know, putting 250,000 down on a million dollar property versus 250 million, you know, yeah, yeah, it's, it's completely different. So I learned about syndication. Syndication is just a fancy name for crowdfunding or getting a pool of individuals together with a bunch of money with a common goal. And depending on how you do the syndication, you either have the SEC overseeing it, or you don't have the SEC overseeing it. And there's a very tiny nuance on that. and And it does matter. So we've we've done um, it's the Internal Revenue Code. Um, it's a Regulation D, uh, Rule 506B or Rule 506C. Depending on which one you do, you can solicit to the general masses or you cannot. And if you do it wrong, you can get in big trouble. Um, exactly. And then um, there's other types of syndication like Opportunity Zone funding. Um, which we've just started our very first Opportunity Zone Fund, and we're really excited about that. And that's where you're raising a lot of money. So initially, I started partnering with um, uh, people that I knew in business, and we would partner up to, they would provide some of the capital, I would provide the, the knowledge and put the deal together and then put it together, sell it, reap the rewards, rinse, repeat. And then as we got bigger into... More, larger projects, I, I had to tap into something bigger, which was the crowdfunding. And so my first um, 506D, I'm sorry, my first rule, Reg D 506 was a B, which meant I could only solicit to my buddies. And it was an $8 million raise. And that was back in um, 2017. Okay. And our latest one, the press release literally went out yesterday that we just really, created. yes, an opportunity zone. Well, congratulations. Program. Thank you. It's a $250 million raise and we're doing it in several rounds. So the first round is a $40 million raise for an Opportunity Zone fund. Wow. Wow. Amazing. And so just so everybody understands on syndications, and I've talked about this in some previous episodes, but it's this opportunity where instead of you having to come up with, you know, the three, five, 10, 15, 25 million dollars, or in this case, $200 million to make a deal work. You can come in maybe as low as fifty to hundred thousand dollars and put that money in that pool and benefit from the expertise, the opportunity of managing, you know, hundreds of apartment units or whatever the project is all at once. And some of these returns, of course, past performance doesn't guarantee future results, but a lot of these apartment syndication returns have just been phenomenal and they've outpaced anything the stock market has delivered. 
And it's just really, and for, for you as an investor, like you're coming in and you're really passive and that's great as long as you're working with somebody who has an experience. And one of the things you talked about was a proven model and analytics. What were some of those key factors that were non-negotiable? We have to have this, this, and this to make a deal work. So one of the things we learned is that buying real estate in any market is a good idea if you know how to buy. And it, you have to know what kind of market you're heading into. You have to know what kind of market you are in right now. You have to know what the demographics are for a normal, healthy, balanced market, because you, you don't know, you, you, you don't have a crystal ball. You can look at past performance in the entire history of real estate, and you can make some educated guesses, but you have to have the basic analytics down. What is your net operating income? What is your gross expenses? What is the cost of capital? Um, what do what do all of those things put together look like in, in terms of what the asking price is? And then how do you evaluate it with some what-if sensitivity analysis? Um, I was talking to a, a student the other day and, and they wanted to, to purchase this property down in uh, South Carolina. And on the surface, it looked really good. But when we actually dug deep into the numbers, it wasn't a grand slam at the asking price. And so we had to I had to help them understand it's okay to lower the price so that you get your operating investment uh, criteria met. So they they just thought it was a great, I'm going to go buy this 24 unit. It's going to be amazing. But when we when we showed them about adding debt onto it and what that does, just a half a percentage point literally changed their cash flow by 50%. Oh my goodness. Just by going from six and a half percent to seven percent in the interest rate. And so getting people to understand the mindset, there's been so many investors out there that, you know, they've they've been playing at hips looking cool. They've been buying, yeah. you know, lots of larger properties. They put um maximum debt on it at at really cheap money, but it was short-term money. You know, yes. it was a two-year note, a three or four or five-year note. And now all of a sudden those notes are starting to come due. In, a, in an environment where the interest rate is no longer 3% at six or seven, and now they don't cash flow because they bought them at a cap rate that was not sustainable. It was a 4% cap rate when a normal healthy market would have been six. And so what they what they do is they they look at it and they, they romance the numbers. So for me, I, I have one pretty consistent standard for evaluating it. And if it meets this criteria, I'll go forward. And if it doesn't meet this criteria, I won't because I do worst case analytics because if worst case happens and I'm still showing a 15% IRR, I'm great. If worst case doesn't happen, that 15% IRR just bumped up. It allows me to under promise and over deliver every time. Exactly right. And guys, everyone listening, IRR, internal rate of return with properties and so when you're finding these uh, opportunities, you, you, can't, you can't compromise on certain things. I remember as an early real estate investor, I did. I, I would come closer to the full asking price, even though I knew the deal was not going to work long-term and it, I got punished long-term. So you have to go in and know what your numbers are and, and not be afraid to walk away from every deal until one fits your parameters and that's the non-negotiables that you've got to have to be a good investor. But if you're investing with someone who has a proven track record and systems and formulas, and so to give you guys a kind of peel the curtain back a little bit, there's a, there was a big investment group out of Texas, I believe, that yes, had three or 4,000 apartment units and they foreclosed on all of them and yep. over a hundred million dollars of investor money was lost because yep. The group made short-sighted decisions. They got variable interest rates on the mortgage debt. The rates went higher, like they all have, right? And just like Silicon Valley Bank went uh, bankrupt, these properties couldn't pay the mortgage. They couldn't cash flow, and everybody lost out. That's why it's so important to always minimize risk. And if you're dealing with apartment syndications, how important, Robin, is it that that debt piece is the right debt piece? It's huge. It, it, it can make or break and often does make or break the deal. And you said something that was so critical, Leo, you said, be okay with walking away 
from every deal. Because a lot of these investors, they got in trouble because they were in a competitive environment and they didn't want to miss out. And they and they said, you know what, I'm just going to go for it because it's going to work out. And they didn't do the numbers. That's why you have to have a system. You have to know what your uh, investing criteria is. And, and you have to be okay with walking away. The student I was talking about, that they were, the seller said, I'm not going below 1.8 million. And the deal wasn't a good deal unless it was at 1.5 million. And so I, I explained to them, I said, look, guys, here's the thing. Walk away, offer them the 1.5 million, give them the, the, the logic behind why. And, and, and I coached them through that. And then I said, and here's what's going to happen. Because all the sophisticated investors are going to do exactly what I'm telling you to do. And the seller ultimately is going to come back and go, oh, okay. And three months from now, they're going to be knocking on your door saying, hey, remember that offer for 1.5 million? Would you take it? And then I said, you're going to offer them 1.45 because the market has shifted yet again. And they will accept your offer at 1.45. And I just said, mark my words and it will happen. Exactly right. So such important lessons. Now you mentioned a term opportunity zone, and I know a lot of us have seen this in the news. We've read it, but maybe aren't very familiar with it. Educate our audience. What is an opportunity zone and how does this work? Sure. So this was, this was a legislation that was created in 2017 and it affected the internal revenue code. Uh, every single governor in every state in the nation were tasked with finding uh, census tracts within the state that needed help, that needed some rejuvenation, some regentrification, et cetera. And those census, census tracts were identified and submitted to, I believe it was part of the CARES Act or could have been the Jobs Act. I don't remember. But anyway, it was in 2017 and it became uh, it became um, uh, legal in uh, January 1st of 2018. So it allowed uh, people who had capital gains to invest into an opportunity zone that was bringing fresh capital into an area that would encourage more development, whether it was for business or whether it was for real estate. And the capital gains could have been from, let's say, somebody made it really big in Bitcoin or they made it big in, you know, they sold a luxury yacht, um, they sold sh shares of stock, uh, they had a 1031 exchange that they couldn't do, or they sold real estate and didn't want to put it back into yet another property that they wanted to manage. And so um, these opportunity zone funds are an uh it, it's a syndication. It, it has um, a little bit more regulations because the the amount of money that goes in there is a deferral of capital gains. And right now in legislation, they're looking to do an extension on this because when it was originally written, the the investor, let's say you put a million dollars into a fund, the first five years that are in there, you defer that capital gain of that million dollars. But you get a five percent. I'm sorry, you get a ten percent discount on that hundred that uh, one million dollars. So now instead of having a one million dollar tax liability, you have a nine hundred thousand dollar tax liability. And if you kept it in this fund for two more years, you got a further five percent reduction. So instead of having a a nine hundred thousand um, dollar taxable event, you have an eight hundred and fifty thousand dollar taxable mm. event. So now when it's time to pay, pay taxes on that million dollars, you're now only paying taxes on the 850 million, that's 850,000. So if they kept that million dollars in this opportunity zone fund, and let's say that million dollars turned into a $10 million profit, they still have to pay taxes on the 850,000, but that $10 million profit is now 100% tax free. What? Yeah. Wow. So the so, OZ so the growth so the growth of the opportunity zone investment grows should I dare tax I say tax free, free? oh one hundred percent tax free wow yep well there so it is the my friends yeah That's so the uh, the the extension act is is to extend that first five and seven year period so that it it rolls down um, yeah. this program goes out to twenty forty seven. 
Um, but the first five and seven years were only based on uh, from the date of 2018. Mm. So now they're they're looking to extend that out a little bit more. So we may be um, petitioning Congress to really work on that because they haven't been working on it very much right now. Yeah, well, they've been playing with that uh, debt ceiling, but they got that taken care of. So yeah. hopefully they can turn their attention because clearly the benefits of these opportunity zones have been phenomenal for these communities that were able to get much better property development and new businesses in there that maybe wouldn't have invested in there, but now are, and it's revitalizing a lot of places that have been underserved. And so that's really positive and, and awesome for everybody that can get involved. And so for everybody listening who is now learned so much from your story and about opportunity zones and developing property, probably the question they have as they're looking to make their next investment decisions is, Robin, where are we at in 2023? You know, we've got higher interest rates. The Fed uh, just decided on Wednesday that they are going to, you know, hold for this current period, but they might raise interest rates two more times. Uh, our mortgage rate is going to go even higher. And then what do I really, what should I be looking to invest in? Where are we at with this real estate market? Where do you think we're going? And we need someone with your expertise and guidance to give us some uh, some clues. If I had a crystal ball, my crystal ball would say that there's going to be an awful lot of really good apartment opportunities coming up. And the reason for that okay. is specifically, like you had mentioned, that that Texas develop the Texas yes. uh, indicator. Um, mm. Unfortunately, there are way too many of them out there. They might not have been on the broad scale of 3000 units. They might have only been 10 or 20 or 15 units and they they over leveraged it. Um, in a very um, competitive market. But now, it, for me, it doesn't matter what the interest rates are. It doesn't matter to me what the price is. It doesn't matter to me any of that stuff, as long as I evaluate it using my criteria, which is worst case. And it, and it allows me to do a sensitivity analysis to say, okay, if the interest rates are 8% and I want to purchase this 20 unit or 40 unit, can I afford to do it if I have 65 or 75% debt on it at 8%? And if I can't, how much do I have to lower the purchase price or the offered price in order to be able to make it work according to my rate of return? So my rate of return minimum is 12%. I like to target for 15%. And then that way, when worst case doesn't happen, that number is going to go up significantly. So as long as I'm running the analysis the same way, it doesn't matter what the market is for me. But what I can tell you is that there's a lot of short-term debt that is coming due in the commercial space. And as a result, there's because it's coming due now and the interest rates are significantly higher, the cash flows don't work at what they're going to be asking for. So you're going to see the cap, the cap rate uh, relaxed a little bit more into a more healthy market. So I don't romance the numbers at all because that's going to bite me in the bum. But I'm going to tell you that there's going to be an awful lot of really, really good deals out there if you are dealing with an experienced operator that knows what they're doing. Exactly right. So so some of the takeaways, uh, value bombs, Robin just dropped. Rates don't matter as much. What matters is can this be a profitable property? And when you target 12 to 15%, are you talking about strict cash flow on a 12-month basis, uh, including uh, the debt payments? Or are you talking overall that, you know, I'm, I'm paying the balance down, I've got some tax uh, benefit with depreciation, and I'm expecting, you know, to be, maybe be able to increase rents because uh, I'm going to make some improvements and the, pro the rents will eventually go up, the value will go up when I sell. How are you kind of targeting that, uh, that number in your calculations? So in my internal rate of return, it's based on cash flow. And I want that to be a minimum of 12% because I know that I also have additional uh, benefits that are going to help me out to bring that return up. For example, somebody else is paying down my mortgage, which is why I'm in apartments, right? So that's amortization. That's one reason why we invest. And that amortization that somebody's paying down my mortgage has a percentage return on it. Um, I have depreciation, which I have no choice but to take depreciation um, because that's what the government says I have to do. So depreciation also has a tax benefit, a, per, a percentage benefit for me. 
um, the cost of the debt and the um, the fact that it's going to appreciate over time because you make your money when you buy it, you realize your profit when you sell it. Okay, so for me, my cash um, internal rate of return is going to be 12% or better. But that's just for me. That that might not be good enough for somebody else or it might be super high for somebody else. It, but for me, how I invest, that's my target because, and that's my worst case analytics, right? So when I say worst case analytics, if if I have a project that's going to take me, if my construction company says it's going to take six months to convert this uh, this value add apartment into something market rate, instead of putting six months in my budget, I'm putting nine or 10 months in there. So I'm adding a buffer in there for my payments. And, and um, I'm also going to look at if, if I know the market rent solid today or 1650, I'm going to put 1500 in my pro forma because I'm, I'm building in little baby buffers, which add up to a big buffer. So if, and those are all worst case analytics, because if I'm going to, if I'm, let's say I'm, I'm renting out, 40 units all at the same time and somebody else is renting out 40 units in the same market. If they're rent if they're charging 1650 and I'm charging 1500, I'm going to get a lot more eyeballs on my units and I'm going to get mine filled up before this guy does. And I might even get multiple people bidding on it. So now instead of going 1500, I might get 1550 or 1575. But it also leaves me built-in growth for the next time when we renew those leases, right? But I'm not going to have losses to lease because I've over over asked, right? So I want to be not just the best property in the market in terms of quality and location, but I also want to be the best in terms of pricing. And I do that specifically so that my so that I can buy it right. So if I have to make sure that if I'm taking investors' money in, that I am protecting that money. And the only way I can do that is to make sure I don't romance the numbers and I know what my analytics need to be so that I can meet their expectations or in my case, exceed expectations. Because if I can exceed expectations, they're going to want to come back and say, okay, rinse, repeat, let's do another one. And as you look at some of these opportunities you've taken advantage of in apartments and syndications the last uh, decade or so, were what percentage would you say were kind of value adds where you identified an opportunity, you could make some improvements, gradually increase rents, or were a lot of them more just finding the right deal that maybe didn't necessarily need as much cash into it? So when I talk to the brokers, a lot of the brokers will bring me deals off market because they know I'm going to close amazing. Okay. Um, and, and they know what I'm looking for because I've articulated it. I found out what their business model was, and then I helped them to understand how their business model could be achieved if they work with me. So when I do that, I say, look, I'm looking for underperforming assets and underperforming assets could be just a mom and pop that have owned the same 30 units for 25 years, they've maintained it really well, but they never raised the rents. So now the value of the property based on their income is well below what it needs to be. So that could be one example of of an underperforming asset. Um, It could be an asset that's that's a heavy lift, meaning it was really deteriorated. And as long as I can get it at the right price, I don't mind going in and doing a major, major construction project on it. the other thing that we do is adaptive reuse, where we would take an old office building or, or an old hotel or an old school or an old building that was once built for one purpose, and then we convert them into apartments. And for that one, as long as I'm buying it at the right price per square foot, it makes sense for us to do the, the development. So there's a lot of those great opportunities out there as well. So I'm going to say probably about 50-50 on adaptive nice. reuse or and um, value add. Perfect. I love that. And then right now, obviously, we're seeing major disruptions in commercial real estate right now. And what kind of opportunities? You mentioned one opportunity being a lot of these uh, apartments that were maybe financed irresponsibly at variable rates that are resetting where they're going to have to unload that to or, or face really serious consequences in which there's going to be other opportunities there. What kind of opportunities do you foresee with commercial properties that might be transitioned or converted into residential units as you can, might be able to get phenomenal details in some of these uh, you know, commercial properties out there? Yeah, I mean... Th- 
There's opportunity everywhere as long as you understand how to read that opportunity. And, you know, I, I stick with what I know. Warren Buffett says, stick with what you know. And oh, he also yeah. says, when people are afraid, be greedy. And when people are yeah. greedy, be afraid. So over the last few years, I've been afraid because everybody was greedy and I, oh, I could see what they were doing and I knew it was tragic. And I, I stick with what I know. I do apartments. I do apartments because it's what I like. And I'm ex, I'm I'm uh, growing into mixed use on a, on a much bigger scale. So because I don't understand that market significantly, I've hired experts to help me with that so that they can kind of help to hold my hand through that learning curve. Um, and I'm and I'm in a really good position to be able to do that just because of some of the decisions I've made previously. And um, I, I know that there's opportunities out there for everything. I, I don't get into the cannabis stuff. I don't get into office buildings. It, it's just not my bailiwick. So for me, I'm going to suggest there are a lot of opportunities that are going to be out there. Pick something that you can be passionate about or something that has a big interest for you. And then learn everything you can about how to evaluate that specific asset type in a specific market. Absolutely. Be smart, well, be smart about this, it. Don't, don't, don't romance the numbers. Don't romance the numbers. Be think worst case scenario. Give yourself buffers. A lot of really smart value bombs. Robin's uh, leaving for everybody. At this point, our audience is thinking, wow, I could spend decades hoping to learn and become an expert at apartment syndication opportunity zones. Or how could I get involved, you know, working with Robin and her team and some opportunities? And so I want to you know, give you the chance here to give everybody an avenue where they can take action. This is not a passive podcast. We want to be action takers and work with great experts who have impeccable reputations and results driven like you. What's the next step that they could take to learn more about working with you, your team, maybe even syndicating with some of these opportunities? Uh, the best thing is to pick up the phone and call or send an email. Uh, text is usually pretty good. And, um, you know, I'll educate you through the process. I'll educate you through the the opportunities that we have available now. And uh, we're always looking for equity partners, but they have to be good equity partners, meaning we want to align values. Um, one of the things I didn't like about being an agent is you could work with a jackass, <laughs> excuse the expression. Oh, yeah. And, and that jackass could spend 80% of your time for 20% of your revenue. And the single yeah. best thing I ever did for my business back then was to fire the jackasses and not yeah. take every single buyer, not take every single seller, because it just wasn't worth the aggravation. So as a result, we're the same way with our syndications and with our equity partners. We want to make sure that it's a good match. We want to make sure that the, the mindset is the same, that they want to do something for the communities, that they want to help elevate the living conditions of fellow human beings. And it's not just about the money. Don't get me wrong. We are very good about the money. We we manage the money. We give good returns, but we don't want it to be solely about the money because it changes. I, for me, it changes the, the why behind doing the investing. So, you know, give me a call, shoot me an email. Pretty easy. Or you can go to our uh, website for our latest project, legacy at laconia.com. Uh, we just opened up a $250 million fund um, for a, a, a village that's all age levels, um, all income levels, and all ability levels. And it's, it's a brand new model that I think is going to change. I think it's going to change the housing industry in America. Tell us, tell us more about this project. This is an exciting project. And you it just is. had a, a press release about it yesterday, right? We did. We had a press release okay. that announced the Opportunity Zone Fund. And um, I'll, I'll show you guys. Um, so this is the project right here. It's 217 acres, 1,260 homes. Um, and the, wow. when I say homes, I'm talking about residential units. Um, there's 65 uh, single family homes and duplexes. There's market rent townhomes. There's uh, affordable housing, there's um, 
workforce housing. There's a, a specialty boutique hotel that we are just uh, working with a very high level flag um, to create the first ever in the world um, luxury resort for people with disabilities. And every single room will be a luxury, uh, universally designed, accessible, barrier free, but it doesn't feel institutional. It doesn't feel industrial. It's a luxury resort and it will be catering to people who have disabilities. And it's the largest demographic that's growing for the travel industry. And it's the only protected class that any one of us could join from a trip on the stairs to an accident. And there's a lot of people that are traveling and want to travel, but can't because there's no really good place for them to go. And so we're changing this model for the village, uh, what we call the village. Um, and it's, I'm very excited about it. We have uh, one of the major, major hotel companies flew out their uh, senior executive VP to walk the property with us and they want us to sign with them. So we're very excited about that. We're going to be changing the face of commercial uh, Robin, it, it looks like a beautiful, beautiful area there. Very green, it's lush stunning. vegetation right there by the water. Is that right? It is. So to the left of, so if you look at this, um, over here is um, a state park, which um, has the shoreline for uh, Winnesquam Lake. This is up in the lakes region in uh, New Hampshire. Um just across the street, this is the one the one hundred six right here. Just on the other side of that is Opeechee Lake, and then over this way, just a little bit, is uh, Lake Winnipesaukee, which is the largest lake in New England. So it's it's a really beautiful area. There's a lot of hills. In addition um, to the hotel that's going to be built specifically to cater to people with disabilities, we have a lot of. Um, on-site activities for them. We're going to have hot air balloons. We're going to have agreements with uh, pontoon boat operators to be able to have um, like basically four-wheel drive wheelchair paths to get to the boats so that we can get them in. We'll have rock rock wall climbing. Um, we also have a skateboard park. Every one of these um, compounds in here has their own swimming pool, their own dog park. And it's, it's a completely different village um, concept. It's basically what I call womb to tomb. You can be born into this village and you can age all the way through to the time when you need senior care because we have senior care components here as well, independent senior living. We also have memory care, assisted living. Um, we've got a lot of retail down here. We've got uh, pickleball courts, indoors and outdoors. We have a skateboard park for the kids to enjoy. We, there's so many exciting things about this. We, we love it. We're really excited. We built a phenomenal team to be able to make this a reality. And the city is so supportive. Everyone, go to Legacy at Laconia. That's L-A-C-O-N-I-A.com, Legacy at Laconia. And share the impact of this opportunity zone development that is really unlike anything I've ever heard. And I've been in real estate for about 20 years now. So again, that's Legacy at Laconia. And what an opportunity. You can actually reach out to Robin and get an opportunity to learn all of her wisdom and all of the ups and downs in the real estate market. And the worst thing you can do is try to tackle today's market in 2023 on your own without, and the cool thing about Robin, she's been doing this in the 90s, she's been doing this in the 2000s, the 2010s. And when you have three decades worth of experience, that helps you to minimize risk and puts the odds in your favor to be very, very successful. So Robin, a big thanks to you for sharing your time and wisdom. And the final word is yours. I was just going to say thank you very much. You you said um, sharing my wisdom. I just want to be very transparent. The only reason I'm I have this much wisdom is because I've made every single mistake oh, yeah. in the book, <laughs> and that's how you get smart. Is you yeah. you you get beat up, right? And and I have I've gone through every single market market cycle that there is. Um, don't don't be afraid to invest, guys. Just know what you're doing to invest and partner with people that are educated, that have a proven track record, that have your best interest at heart. And, you know, you can do really well. 
And Leo, thank you so much for having me on. It just, what a treat. Thank you. Everyone, again, that's legacy at laconia.com. Robin Alexander, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. You are very welcome. Thank you. Are you looking for more seven-figure secrets, content, or even how you can launch your own recession-proof business? Then check out sevenfigures.com. That's the digit seven, F-I-G-U-R-E-S.com, where we share more videos, stories, strategies, funding solutions, entrepreneurial education, and even the secret business type that's recession-proof. Thank you for listening, and if you're finding value in our podcast, please give us a five-star and invite others to join the club.